0: So if you're out flying and you've got a 1 per rev, I'm not saying every time you could remove it, but you could reduce 1 per revs by reaching up in your overhead control panel and changing the length of the rotor blade control rod that went out to the servo
1: flap. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters, to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 83. One of the really nice side effects of putting these podcasts out there is that I get the occasional email or LinkedIn connection from you, the listeners, and find out a bit about where you are and what it is that you get up to, which is a a bit of a spin out sometimes because I'm normally sitting here recording at my house after hours in a little town called Redcliffe, just on the the outside of uh, Brisbane in Australia. And that's a long way from where some of you are listening in. Some of you are doing some really interesting jobs or has some very colorful histories. It's quite humbling to hear that you are learning and picking up some of the things from the episodes. Jim Palmquist is one of you that got in contact and we've traded a few emails backwards and forwards. Jim was a US Navy search and rescue pilot flying sea sprites off supercarriers during the Vietnam War and then he became a OH-6 pilot with the US Army National Guard. Jim has had what he calls seven different careers but along the way... He's also spent 25 years in aviation parts logistics business. These days, he volunteers at the American Helicopter Museum in Pennsylvania. Some of Jim's tales sounded pretty interesting, so I was keen to see if we could capture them and get them out there out there to share around. Now, embarrassingly, I forgot to hit record until we were about uh, two minutes in, so that's why we jumped straight into to Jim mid-sentence. And Skype has normally been really good, like it's been fantastic for recording most of these. Uh, on this one, we tried a few times to get a good line, uh, but we had that old-school international delay that you used to get when you used to telephone from, say, Australia through the UK, where you'd end up sort of tripping over each other. Uh, so I tie it up in the editing, but you might pick up a couple of times there where we we talk over the top, and that delay is a, the reason why. So kick back. Let's find out a little bit about the Sea Sprite helicopter. It's quite unique and listen to some of the stories from Jim Palmquist's career.
0: Copter Combat Support Squadron 2 out of Lakers, New Jersey. We deployed in four plane, 10 pilot detachments on a variety of aircraft carriers, and I've served on maybe four, five, six aircraft carriers altogether. So mostly my time was on the America and the Kennedy. I was on a cruise in the Mediterranean with the John F. Kennedy, which is a 1,000-foot long ship, 5,200 sailors, I think around 75 aircraft. You know, it's a great life living on an aircraft carrier. There's a lot to do, and it's exciting. And you, you know quite a few people, but you don't know everybody. It's just way too many people. But you know that everyone on that ship is going to do their job, and you better do your job to make everything happen. So it's, it's a real exciting life. Uh, and maybe like your British uh, previous interviewee said, the way the U.S. Navy operates is every time they launch a recover aircraft, launch catapult off the bow or bring them aboard on a tailhook, the helicopter is airborne before the first aircraft uh, operates on the ship. So if it's the first aircraft is going to be a catapult, the helicopter is airborne first. Then they catapult what they're going to launch. Then they recover the landing remaining aircraft. And then they call the helicopter aboard a sh- a again, shut down refuel, rearm, whatever we're doing for an hour, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes or whatever. And then we go through that cycle continually. So we, and peacetime, we might do it six times a day. And one day was a Sunday and there were no flight ops scheduled for the morning, but the air boss called us and said he needed to get a chaplain from one warship to another warship. And, uh, and they said, we're actually late. So the, the second ship's waiting for the chaplain to do the services. So we took off in a June morning in the Mediterranean. It was mild, I think it was 65 degrees or something, very mild day. And we were doing maybe 200 feet, maybe 120 knots, uh, zipping over to get to this uh, uh, warship, surface ship. And we're flying along. I was the aircraft commander. My co-pilot was also an aircraft commander. And my co actually had more combat experience than I had. And we were flying along, you know, just enjoying ourselves and making time. And all of a sudden, the tail rotor, so the tail pylon started to jiggle. started to shake violently, really. Uh, it was shaking so violently that the needles and some of the gauges were invisible. They were whipping back and forth. and as we went through this evolution, the, one of the gauges climbed out of the dashboard and hung on its power, its power cable, the cannon plug in the back. I turned back towards the, uh, the aircraft carrier and we chatted briefly about what we could do. We both knew the procedure and then Sea Sprite is to go to a thousand feet and prepare to auto rotate. And we knew from 200 feet shaking this violently, we were not going to 1,000 feet at all. So my co pilot right away called the ship. And later in the, a couple of minutes later, we could see the backup helicopter starting up because we were still only four or five miles from the ship. We uh, jettisoned all our loose cargo. I had the crewman take a look in the tunnel to see if there was anything in the, in the cables that run out to the tail rotor that might have indicated uh, some problem we could do something about. Um, and there was nothing we could do there. My co-pilot took control of the data field. The rudder pedals were kicking back and forth, and we didn't put much pressure on the rudder because we figured this thing might break if we uh, put too much pressure on it. And we uh, decided to, you know, limp back to the ship, save the ship, save the aircraft, save the aircraft and and save the crew and that kind of stuff. And then I took control back. And then as we were, this is all maybe a 10-minute period, as I was flying along, suddenly, it seemed to me everything went silent. Uh, the rotor blade is going counterclockwise, and the fuselage started to twist clockwise in the opposite direction of the main rotors, indicating we didn't think about it, but indicating the tail rotor was no longer providing us uh, thrust. Um, and we entered the water upright, um, uh, but we were in a skid, a huge skid. And the reason for the skid was the aircraft has got um, main gearbox, combining gearbox, two turbines, and two speed reducer gearboxes above it, so it's very top heavy. And we capsized. Uh, and I grabbed my door. We'd already jettisoned the doors. I grabbed my door frame, but it was horizontal immediately. And my co pilot poked me in the butt, saying, He's coming out my door because his door is now down. We uh, leapt out, leaped out of the aircraft. Uh, well, it, it, actually, we didn't leap out of the aircraft. The aircraft sank away from us. I didn't jump at all. The aircraft just sank, and I was in the water. I pulled my flotation gear, my co pilot did. There's a, the crew is four people, a pilot and co-pilot, a senior air crewman and a wet crewman. And when we first looked around, there were only three of us, the wet crewman, the co-pilot and I were swimming or floating right next to where the aircraft had sunk. And we thought we'd lost our senior air crewman And at that point I thought, well, I wish I could get on my flotation uh, gear and go help uh, get him out of the of the aircraft, but the aircraft had sunk immediately and there was nothing to see. It turned out he was in the next wave cycle, as, as we were about maybe four or five, six-foot waves. And you ever, at the peak of the wave, you could see him. He swam over. And the other interesting thing about it was the, um, the wet crewman is a crewman that goes into the water to rescue pilots that are unconscious or victims or the like, manover boards that are unconscious. So he doesn't wear a uh, full uh, life preserver. He wears what's called a UDT vest, which is a cylinder of a bubble that goes under his chin. And it gives him a little buoyancy. But I told him, get his helmet on firmly while we were in the aircraft, because as this thing starts shaking violently and throws his head around, he gets unconscious and gets killed. So we had his helmet on tight. When he pulled his little UDT vest that inflates automatically, the bubble of the vest lifted up his helmet and it choked him across his nape strap. So very quickly, he's, this guy's choking over here. And I swam over to him and deflated his UDT vest. And I had uh, these LPA L- L- one water uh, wings I call them, but they're very buoyant. So I held on to the wet crewman for the rest of the entire time in the water, which is only five or ten minutes maybe. And then we went up the hoist. Uh, the wet crewman went first, since he was the least buoyant. And uh, we, by the way, in the water we were talking and discussing. I can't believe we lost our aircraft and just just generally chatting. But then when the ho- rescue helicopter came, we uh, the wet crewman went up the up the uh, hoist first. I went up second, and by the time I got in the back of the H-2 that we were rescued with, my wet was shaking violently, I mean, freezing, really, I guess, and, and emotionally upset. And when the uh, uh, co-pilot came up third, and the uh, Caesar crew came up last, we landed on board the ship, uh, and a corpsman, a medical person, came up to each one of us, threw a blanket over us, and I think the blanket was to identify who the victims were to make sure everybody knew who the folks yeah. on the four people who could be injured. And then they asked us questions like, "What day is it? What ship be on? What squadron are you in? What's your name?" To see if we had mental injuries or anything like that. We got down to sick bay, and there were two flight surgeons scrubbed up in rubber gloves and rubber aprons and ready to operate. Well, there was nobody that needed operating, and uh, we got a medical check, and nobody was injured, and we were put back, you know, for afternoon rest. And the next day we were on the flight schedule again. The there was an f action review board conducted. Uh, they said, we did everything we could do to save the aircraft. Uh, they assumed it was some sort of a mechanical problem that was not uh, preventable. And by the time the Aircraft accident Review Board was done, there was another sea sprite crash in the Mediterranean, very similar to ours. It was about 10 days later. These people were from a squadron that operated off of like cruisers and destroyers, like one helicopter per ship. They were at 1,000 feet, and it was an F model, a, and a submarine model. And they fell from a 1,000 feet. And I think a person was killed and uh, it was a very bad accident. Witnesses to that crash said the tail rotor was slowing down as they fell from this altitude. And uh, then the Navy move, must have a problem. So my ship had four helicopters on at the Eric Air- John F. Kennedy. One was crashed. And they had inspectors come out and inspect the tail rotor and intermediate gearboxes and shafts. And one of the ones on my ship, had cracks in the plate where the intermediate gearbox is attached to the aircraft. Now, so out of the main transmission, you have a shaft going down to the intermediate gearbox. A 40, the intermediate gearbox is a 45 degree angle change up to the tail rotor, which is a 90 degree angle change out to the tail rotor blades. That intermediate gearbox is on, has three legs to it and it's attached to an aluminum plate and it's covered with corrosion preventative. So it can't be attacked by salt water because the salt water could destroy it. But you can't pre-flight that plate uh, visually, that's something you'd have to take off the corrosion preventative, I guess, to figure out the plate's damaged. And the metalsmith came out and tore up the tail, ripped off the skin, ripped up the stringers and all inside the intermediate gearbox area, rebuilt it, repainted it, and looked like new. And I don't think the Navy had another failure like this ever again, as far as I know. Uh, and so that's the
1: story. You never want to be the crash test dummy to uh, to find these things out. But all right, I've got a bunch of right. I've got a bunch yeah. of questions to shoot at you, Jim, about that. Then, when you're ready. Okay. Yeah, so you mentioned the pedals. So when you had your feet on the pedals, were the, were the pedals like, actually moving backwards and forwards underneath your feet? That was the feedback from the were, from the Redblades?
0: It wasn't uh, that they were forced back and forth, but they were jiggling. They were shaking violently. And you thought, boy, these, these things are, you know, we had enough uh, heading control to get back to the ship without a problem. Yep. But we agreed we were going to make very slow and mild power changes because we figured anything we do is just going to aggravate the violent vibration and cause the aircraft to break.
1: Yeah, I think it's in your text write-up, but I don't know if you mentioned it. Your uh, offside of the other pilot mentioned bring the speed back to forty-five knots and seventy oh, I, feet. Oh, you're right. Profile. I forgot that. Yeah,
0: you're right. I did forget that. So as we were discussing what we were at uh, uh, 200 feet, and about one hundred twenty knots, I was I'd slowed down a lot, and my co-pilot had flown in Vietnam on a combat squadron in the Mekong Delta flying Huey gunships, and he threw out the idea uh we always we we always said that if we were in trouble, go to forty feet and forty knots. the write up I did said seventy five feet or something, and I'm not sure why there's a discrepancy, but I believe it was actually forty feet and forty knots, and his idea was you can fall forty feet in the ocean and uh, not you know survive that where if you fall up thousand feet, it becomes more dangerous but that that's that that was the key to saving our lives. the fact that he had a lot of very practical experience flying above gross vehicle weight and high-density altitudes and all that kind of stuff.
1: Now, I hate to like quarterback or anything, but in terms of discussion, if someone finds themselves in the same situation, if you had to kept more speed on, like normally when you think about loss of tarot or control, you would keep some speed on and keep some sort of directional control with the vertical stab. Is it a different yeah. setup in the, in the C-sprite or that, that just wasn't a consideration at the time?
0: That is the concept that our safety procedures are written around to the maintain 65 knots and try and use the fuselage as a weather vane to keep the heading going forward. Our transition to a hover, our, our way of landing on an aircraft carrier is to come up the left port side into a hover adjacent to the angle and then slide over 50, 60, 70 feet, uh, you know, so you're maybe 20 feet above the deck and then dropping down on the deck. There was no way to do that maneuver but with holding your fuselage going straight in the wind. So we were not really interested in trying to use a weather evading. If we had gone on going to a big runway, big wide runway on a nearby airfield, I suppose we might have talked about that. But that transition to a hover to get on board the ship, there was no way to maintain heading. And the aircraft accelerated to a rotating condition very quickly. You know, there was a lot of torque on that thing uh, that was forcing that fuselage around. I didn't get the feeling at all that we could have maintained any kind of heading with 70 knots of wind. 65 knots of wind over
1: a fuselage. No, you did a great oh, job uh, to keep it upright or. going down. So <laughs> good job. Yeah, just luckily, yeah. With that, um, with the life jackets, I guess, you know, looking back, would you have held off inflating your life jacket until you did a head count? Or was it automatically, I guess it wasn't an automatic inflation when it detected seawater? Yeah, it was to not ma-
0: automatic, no. I think our idea was that we were in the water, so you, put, you pull your life jacket, and you assume that everyone's going to get out, the doors are open, we're all, you know, uh, and as I said, there was no aircraft to see. The aircraft sank away from me so quickly, and the ocean is dark blue, it's not kind of like uh, Mediterranean, uh, so you, it, there was no place to go, and as I said, I thought about, well, if I could get, it, it would take me minutes to get out of that, that, rest, that uh, survival gear, so slim for the guy, probably, to get all the things uncooked and everything. But I thought there's no way, nowhere to swim to. There's nothing I can see anywhere around that I could rescue.
1: Yeah, when we had the uh, um, Black Hawk in Fiji off the side of the boat and in the water, and the the survivors from that just said that it sank like a freight train. There was no, you know, there was no diving in to get anyone out. That thing was sinking, yeah. and it, it was gone. There was there was nothing left. It was yeah, <laughs> it, it sank very very quickly. Yeah. Was was there floats? Was, there, have- was it fitted like? Did you have pop out floats or anything like that?
0: Yeah, we did have uh, I forgot what they're called, but we did have a T bar that we could open up two bladders uh, adjacent to the front cockpit on both sides. I didn't pull those, and uh, and my copilot didn't pull them. We just uh, things happened so fast that we uh, we didn't pull them. And uh, yeah, so no, they didn't give us any criticism to aircraft action review board about that. But afterwards, I thought we could have pulled the T thing, but things happened very fast as it started spinning. We fell into the ocean and then capsized right away. It happened very quickly.
1: Yeah, no, like from I that, that height. don't think the
0: aircraft recoverable.
1: Yeah, go ahead. No, yeah, from that height, I think, you could, as I said, I think you did a great job just getting in. No, there's more just as a, as a background yeah. sort of info just in terms of, you know, what the systems were on board. So, yeah, yeah. I think you, you were – I don't know if there's anything else to add to there, but you were going to talk about – it didn't come up in the review board, but you had thoughts about yeah. what the Airbus. Sorry, air boss. Yeah. Do you want to describe their position yeah. on, on the ship and, and what they do?
0: Okay, so on an aircraft carrier, the air boss is the, uh, the the commander that runs the flight deck in the adjacent area to the aircraft. He sits in a control tower that overlooks the port side of the flight deck, and he can see up and down the whole length of the flight deck. And he runs what goes on within nearby the aircraft carrier. And when we called in, his staff said, yeah, okay, we'll clear a spot for you to land and uh, launch the backup helicopter in case you need to be picked up. This is a ship that's a fixed-wing ship. These are all fixed-wing ships, and there's 10 pilots and four helicopters on them. And so we're sort of like the, uh, I wouldn't say second-class citizens, but we're the weird ones. We have a different environment. And the Airbus, uh, really, these are top senior um, military naval aviators that have probably run squadrons and have really know aviation well, but they don't know helicopters well. And, and I don't criticize the Airbus for not understanding we were in grave trouble because he'd probably never seen a thing like this and we hadn't either. But as I, I wrote this article, an article up about it that I sent to Nick a few months weeks ago. And, and as I thought about it, I got wrote it up and considered it complete. And then a few months later about, you know, I don't know how many, many years ago, I thought, you know, if we really would understand what was going on, we should have ditched that helicopter and been rescued and just let it go. And the reason for that is the way we come aboard an aircraft carrier, you come up along the porch side, as I said, maybe 40 feet above the flight deck, or parallel to the flight deck. And once you get a hover established, you slide over and you've got a plane captain guiding you uh, to the deck. And then you slide over over the, uh, the deck and then uh, lower from the hover down onto the deck and they chain you down. Those transitions of power are significant. The rudder work that you're doing, the additional power on the rotor head, all that is a lot of uh, strain on the aircraft. And I think there's a good chance that as we went into that hover, the tail rotor shaft would have broken. And now we would have been spinning maybe 40 feet off the uh, flight deck. And if we had it, faded at it all towards the flight deck, the blades would have broken the flight deck. If the aircraft had been over the flight deck and crashed, we might have had a fuel leak. And we could have had a pretty big fire and injure a lot of people. And uh, I mean, I'm sure the air boss, if he would understand the risk would have said, you just ditch that thing out there. We don't care about a million dollar helicopter compared to having an accident. that tears up our flight deck and creates a fire and injures or kills people uh, trying to recover this million dollar helicopter. So, and, and again, I'm not really criticizing the air boss because he didn't understand what we were, and we didn't either understand the issues we were facing until afterwards. But, uh, it's actually a stroke of luck that the aircraft broke a couple
1: of miles from the ship and uh, ditched, rather than came aboard. Let's talk about this million-dollar helicopter then, because it's it's super unique okay. uh, in terms of its you know history and, and design setup. So yeah, let, let's talk us through the the H two Sprite.
0: Okay, um, so Sprite is made by Command Aircraft Corporation, which was located up in Bloomfield, Connecticut, which is uh, north of New York City. Not too far from where Sikorsky has their big plant in Stratford. The H-2's niche in the U.S. Navy was that it was small enough to fit on the back of cruisers, but big enough to do SAR and utility work, search and rescue and utility work. Uh, and that's why larger aircraft couldn't fit in that niche very well. It was uh, the uh, There were five uh, seven models altogether. The first two were single-engine. I have a few hours flying those. They were pretty underpowered, like a lot of early helicopters. The C and primarily the D model were the major uh, ones that operated, and I primarily D models, which, again, are twin turbine, uh, fully instrumented, very, very nice airplanes to fly. And then the E was a developmental model. The F was the anti-submarine model, and the G was the super sea sprite. It was an upgraded uh, anti-submarine model. The key thing about the, so the gross vehicle weight was around 12,500 pounds max. Drive weight was about 8,000 pounds. We've two T-58 GE-8B engines, which are about 1,250 shaft horsepower per engine, about 2,500 horsepower. This mean meant that the airplane almost had enough power to fly in single engine, so you never ran out of power. You never had blade uh, rotor blade droop or any of that kind of stuff. It was just a very, very powerful and capable aircraft. Crew in our SAR configuration was two pilots, and a wet crewman and a senior crewman. Maybe I'll talk more about that later. The interesting thing about H2 is a lot of people don't realize, If you, you everybody knows what a rotor blade looks like, right? It's got a straight leaning edge, a straight trailing edge, and H2 has a flap attached to every rotor blade. It's called a servo flap. It's almost four feet long. It's about nine inch cord, and it's, it is attached to the main rotor, and it follows it by, I don't know, a couple of inches, I think. Many of you that know middle and large size helicopters know that hydraulics are critical to flight. And most helicopters, uh, the helic, the uh, when a rotor blade's going around about 300 revolutions a minute or so, the centrifugal force on that blade to change the pitch of that blade takes a lot of force. So most mid and, in fact, all mid and large size helicopters use hydraulic boost to by uh, power steering to amplify the pilot's inputs and through the flight controls into the main rotor system. And the H2 is the bottom is in the flight in the cockpit and through the. Uh, Rotor shaft is the same as other helicopters. Got gyroscopic inputs, hydraulic inputs, and all that kind of stuff. But when the H2 flight controls go into the rotor system, they don't attach to the rear of the, each rotor blade, just change the blade using leverage. They go through steel rods down through the rotor blade, through mechanical linkages, out to this flap. And the, the rotor blade is aerodynamically changed in attitude or changed in angle of attack rather than using brute force at the root of the blade. This is very similar to an airplane. An airplane has an aileron. The aileron is usually built into the wing. And this is going to H2, the C-spike, uh, the, the uh, flap is attached outside the wing. But it's, so when you want to change the pitch of the main rotor blade, the servo flap changes pitch enough to cause the rotor blade to change its pitch to the setting you want. So it's, uh, it's quite a different uh, configuration. There's a couple of benefits that come with that configuration. Um, let's see, what we I going to say about that?
1: Well, I was going to say, so well, the, the, aircraft, benefit, the aircraft doesn't have hydraulics at all in terms of the... Of the... You know,
0: it has all the hydraulics that all the big and mid helicopters have. Yep, Servos, okay. two pressures of hydraulics in the servo unit, I mean the Cadillac unit, gyroscopic inputs, all that's still there. But the key thing is when you aerodynamically control the blade, you can fly home without hydraulics.
1: So, if you slicked hydraulics aircraft. off in, in, say, training, what are the control loads? Like, I think you had a little bit of Huey time, and um, it, it was, yeah. If, yeah, so what were the control loads like it's when quite, you took hydraulics off?
0: It was quite quite responsive. It wasn't as good as with hydraulics, but and I wouldn't continue a mission unless it was life saving mission or something. I would have flown back to my airplane if I ever lost my airport, if I ever lost hydraulics, but it it was very flyable. You know, it was not, uh, I wouldn't continue my mission, but it was quite controllable. It was not like you're in fright at all. It just the aerodynamically changing the pitch of the blade turns out to be pretty effective. There's a couple of other benefits that come with this. In the early days of helicopters, Uh, They'd put together all the parts and and sit on the ground, turn up the helicopter, and the blades would be all over the place in terms of their alignment. And if you're sitting on the ground with a a newly uh, built helicopter, the blades might be at all different tip paths. So as you look out and you're forward out of the cockpit, usually you like to see one tip path of all four blades or whatever you got flying above you in one line. But if you start out roughly, you might have three or four different paths. And what I understand they used to do many years before I flew is they'd take chalk and they'd put a chalk, a red chalk, in the end of one blade, green, blue, and yellow, let's say. And then while the aircraft is spinning on the ground, they take a stick and touch the uh, edge of the blades, and they get a picture of where each blade is in rele- relation to the other blades. And they say, oh, the yellow blade is down an inch. We've got to adjust it up, and the red blade is up an inch. With the C-Sprite servo-flap system, you could do that manually from the cockpit. So if you're out flying and you've got a one per rev, there's a, it's, I'm not saying every time you could re, remove it, but you could reduce one per revs by reaching up in your overhead control panel and changing the length of the rotor blade control rod that went out to the servo flap. It was done with an electric motor in, in each rotor blade hub. There was an electric, cam, an electric motor and a cam that actually changed the length of that blade to, to take out a uh, rough, uh, rough one per revs to some extent. Wow. If you had a split tip pass, if you had a split t- split tip pass, you could bring them together. Sometimes it actually flew better with split tip pass for what is for us. Um, and so that was an in, unusual uh, configuration. Going one bit of detail, the way it was actually done is the A blade was not adjustable. The um, the C and the B and D blade were adjustable as one unit, though there were two cams. And the so the A B C D so A and a blade was fixed. The C blade was adjustable, and the B and D blade were adjustable at the same time. So you could actually blade blade track. Now, uh, the other nice thing is that we had automatic blade tracking. They had a device that would sense vibration and figure out which blade need to be fixed, adjusted, and it happened automatically. So we never adjusted them manually. I explained how manually worked, but the I've automatic never, blade tracking. Yeah, I've, I've never never heard yeah, of that so, before. So this is, it's, I think, it's an unusual thing, and I was talking to a. Um, Ph.D. helicopter uh, designer uh, and, and one of the major manufacturers, and he said fly-by-wire might be the future of helicopters, and it might well be a flap attached or an extension of the blade that's adjusted by wire, similar to the command strategy, rather than using these huge forces up in the, through the rotor hub like most aircraft do. So it was an idea ahead of its time to some extent. Command had built one other helicopter before the Seabright, and it was called the Husky H. I've forgotten the side number. The Air Force bought three hundred of them or so, and it also had this type of a flight control system. Uh, so this was this was Charles Command, the founder of Command Aircraft's idea.
1: Yeah, you must have had a lot the, of unique, like the you know the intermeshing uh, blades, uh, the the flap on this. Uh, yeah, very very yeah. In- inventive in yeah. terms of yeah, getting out there. Yeah.
0: Mick knows his stuff. The Husky was a intermeshing inter- rotor blade system. It had two rotor shafts at 15 degree angles and two blades each, as I recall. And the blades meshed like an egg that was called an egg beater or something, but it was also controlled this way. Now this made a pretty complex rotor head that took a lot of adjustment. And I think, and I'm not an expert at the maintenance of, uh, I worked in an administration and operations and parts supply, but not in maintenance directly. But these what, these aircraft were sort of hard to maintain, maybe because of this complex system. Uh, after I got out of the Navy, the re- Navy replaced every rotor head with a simpler system using the same servo flap, but they took a lot of the uh, maintenance issues out of it. And the aircraft that are flying today have a different rotor system
1: that I'm familiar with.
0: And so it did- was one of the problems the Hughes had.
1: Yeah, did, did it uh, auto-rotate differently? Like you know, in, in terms of, of flying it a, as a pilot on no. the controls, did it have different different no. feedback? No, just just flew like everything else.
0: No, it, it was gave you complete control. I flew six helicopters, of course, you know, helicopter pilots. I'm sorry, I flew yeah six helicopters, and uh, all of them you practice rotations all the time, and it was a responsive aircraft. I, I do believe the H two C Sprite was a very responsive aircraft. A little flight control input. Aircraft was changing direction or changing heading or changing altitude. It was very responsive. I think, I think of it as a sports car. And so I was in a squadron of 100 pilots and you know 400 enlisted men. We had uh, professional maintenance officers that were, really knew how to do maintenance. And we really didn't have too much trouble with H-2s. But I know there were people that had like, like one aircraft on a ship with four maintenance guys. And there were things that went on they just didn't understand. They didn't have enough experience with H-2s to... Uh, to maintain them and I even know people that were in the Navy five or ten years after I was in and they were afraid of H2s. They thought they were unsafe and they you know, they just were afraid of the aircraft because they were so I guess they were hard to maintain. But in our squadron, we we loved them. We thought they were great airplanes.
1: I had a question before we leave that one too much, about the the hydraulics out recovery on a, a carrier or a, a navy ship. I haven't really thought too much about it and you know, obviously smaller aircraft you need to bring it back to the hover but was that was that an advantage? You could bring, still bring it back to that port side and, and hover it across hydraulic out, or, or would you recover differently?
0: Um, I'm not sure if I understand a question, but so with the, 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 the hydraulics, deck was set up.
1: With the hydraulics failure, would you still come back yeah. and fly the normal oh. profile and slide across the deck, or would you come in more like a fixed wing? Yeah, yep. yeah
0: we, we had good enough control that we would have done the same thing. The uh, flight deck is busy, and the air boss that, uh, decides how he's yeah. going to operate, and there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of configurations the port side got usually a lot of aircraft parked, ready to go on the catapult the, the uh off the side of the landing area there's spots to support park aircraft and you got to keep the resting gear open the catapults open and we were actually our launch and recovery spot in the angle was actually over two cat tracks over two catapults it ran right underneath where we were parked so the waste cats couldn't even fire till we took off but we would if we had uh, by the way, you, you all probably realize that hydraulics are very reliable. I'm, a thousand hours of flying that I've done, I've never had a hydraulic problem. Uh, so they're very reliable. But we've we trained them uh, operating without hydraulics, and you could fly it. You'd maybe take it a little easy, but uh, you could fly it without hydraulics if you needed to.
1: Okay. There's, we've got so much stuff to, to cover here, but you obviously did some Navy time yeah. uh, as well as Army time. So which came first, and, and how did you sort of transfer between yeah. them?
0: Well, so I, um, uh, I'm i a Vietnam-era person, and I got a college degree, and a few months after being out of college, the Army called me for a pre-induction physical and sent me a letter a few months later saying, oh, you're you a pr- prime candidate to be drafted in the Army. You can expect to be drafted in the next three months. And I talked about it. My dad was in the Army Air Corps and was a flight crew member uh, that doesn't have too much combat experience, but he, he, he I will say one thing about it. He did volunteer for the army and a week after Pearl Harbor, December 7th. So he was quite a brave guy, but like a lot of men at the time, but he never actually saw combat, but we talked about it. And I thought, you know, I would like to be in the helicopter community. And I looked around and it looked like the Navy had the best program. So I applied, got in. And uh, before I got a draft notice, I was uh, inducted in the Navy, uh, uh, about a year and a half flight training, three and a half years of sea duty. Um, And I decided this, you know, I had a good time in the Navy, but I thought this family separation was going to be a problem for me to spend a career there. So I got out, but I wanted to keep my flying uh, status up. And the Navy said, well, we would be glad to put you in anti-submarine warfare and we'll train you. And it's like, I forgot three, four, five months school. And I had a career position that I just couldn't take out three or four or five months to go back to school. And so I found an army unit that was near me, I was living in New Jersey and this army unit uh, operated at Trenton, uh, Mercer County Airport in Trenton, New Jersey. And they were primarily flying LOACHES, 086s, which are really simple and reliable and a lot of fun to fly. And so I transitioned, I uh, applied and joined the army and was uh, made an army army aviator and spent two years flying 086s, the utility version. And then I um, got got into, I got to realize that I couldn't, could never make major because I was not willing to take months off to go to what they call advanced school, and therefore I couldn't really have a career. I'd be kicked out before I because for not making my next rank, and so I resigned then after two years in the Army. The Army experience, by the way, was Army National Guard, so I was a weekend warrior and I've got about what I say fifty um, five hours of loach time over a two year period. But the Army has a, a lot more pilots, and they have a lot more flight time. And the Navy uh, officers that fly in the Navy always have shipboard duties. And my shipboard duty was to manage parts supply for our four helicopters and our maintenance crew. And uh, in the Army, I think a lot of these guys were full-time aviators, so they had a lot more flying time. And they were really good pilots. I didn't really get into instrument flying with the Army and that kind of stuff, which was really more the Navy's forte, I think. The six loads didn't have. Bones didn't have any
1: human capability. Yeah, they come pretty light on for yeah. instrumentation. Yeah. Again, in your notes, you talk about a lot of the flights you're doing off the carrier, are like short flights. They were point six up, down. Yeah. So you, lots of iterations.
0: Yeah, a lot, that's true. I mean, I, I you know, I never counted, it, of course, but I would sit my flight log. But we had a lot of half hour and forty minute flights. It was just you know, you might have four, three or four a day, five a day. Uh, you know, just uh, your flight log is full of takeoffs and landings and half an hour flight kind of thing. But that's the job. And you know,
1: the story you, you started talking about uh, a Cobra uh, before we were recording as well. Was that something yeah. you you came across when you were in the army, or was this when since when you've been working or volunteering at the at the helicopter museum?
0: No, it came out of my contacts at the American Helicopter Museum. I met a guy who has got a funny name. His name is Sundiata Cowles, and he's a producer. He's a video producer, and he produced a great video on the first of a series called Design for Battle. And the first video he did was the VTOL Model 49, which is a vision of a helicopter that's a tank. That is, it's an annular device. It's, this is a, if you imagine a can of soup on your, in front of you, take the top and bottom off, put engines inside it, and put the cockpit at the top center so this device can take off straight up like a helicopter, but it can ro- roll over and fly horizontally. And it also had cannon. The vision was to have cannons and that kind of stuff. And this is what this uh, Mr. Cowles put together his first be- uh, video called, again, Design for Battle Episode One: the VTOL Model 49. He's doing another video about the UH-2A Tomahawk, which is a sea sprite, uh, single-engine sea sprite that was part of the Cobra story. And I thought I'd just tell you the Cobra story. The, at the Helicopter Museum, we had a symposium at Westchester University, an all-day-long event where we studied the helicopter history as it related to the 50 years since the Vietnam War and the, you know, the Vietnam was a helicopter war. And an old timer got up and he was a designer for Bell helicopters. And he told a story that was really, I thought, fascinating. Bell was really pleased to have Hueys in Vietnam. They sold, you know, 15,000 Hueys altogether or something. And they were really pleased. But in the early days of the Vietnam War, the Hueys were getting shot down and the crews were getting killed at a high rate. And the generals went back to the Pentagon and said, We need something that's more combat effective than a Huey for really combat, we still need to use to haul troops and engage it lightly, but we need a real combat helicopter, and the only thing the Army had going on was working with Lockheed and what was Cheyenne, the AH AH-56 Cheyenne. Uh, Now, this Cheyenne was a four-bladed combat helicopter, maybe a yard-wide, mini-guns, rocket launchers, and all that kind of stuff, and so the Army put together a bid, saying who can meet, and the bid was largely around the Cheyenne, as I understand it. And when it came down to the competition, the Cheyenne was the obvious winner because no one else had really developed a Cobra-type military helicopter as, as mature as the Cheyenne. So the government awarded the Cheyenne, Lockheed the contract to build Cheyennes, and then they said, okay, what's the delivery time? And I don't remember the details, but let's say it was two, two and a half years, and the generals in Vietnam said, oh, we can't go two and a half years. We cannot wait two and a half years for this thing to come out. The issue with the Cheyenne was It was similar to a Cobra, though it was four-bladed and had a tail prop. It also had a pusher prop. So it had a prop that was uh, similar to a pusher prop on a uh, fixed-wing airplane behind the tail rotor. And the aerodynamics of that and the flight controls and all that stuff was going to take a long time to get approvals and testing and work out the procedures for that. And that delayed delivery of of the Cheyenne. So this is where the H two comes in. The Army went out for a interim, uh, an interim um, uh, aircraft, and H twos were not were uh, proposed as the as the interim aircraft. Five companies offered th- this. Again, what th- this would be? This would be an aircraft, a gunship, that would be in place for a couple of years until the Shays were rolled into the fleet. Boeing put in a Chinook. Piasecki, the people that developed the twin uh, the Chinook the, the, you know, technology, put in a new product. So of course, he put in the F-61, Bell put in a uh, Huey, and then the command people put in the UH-2A Tomahawk. Um, it, was, um, it was a similar appearance to a single-engine H-2 to Sea Sprite today, very maneuverable. It was much less a target than most of the other bidders. I mean, a Chinook is a big target. Uh, and of course, they had them, the H-2s were in the Navy, so they knew how they operated. I think it was severely underpowered. The single engine H2s were, were you know, to have hydraulics and carry weapons and ordnance and all that kind of stuff was just a lot of weight and armor. Uh, I think it would have been uh, severely underpowered. So um, the story that the man told at the symposium was he was sitting there hearing that one, they lost the Bell the People had lost the uh, gunship contract to Cheyenne. Now Cheyenne couldn't deliver. And he he thought to himself about how the military, U.S. military works. If you're developing a new product like the Cheyenne, you have to go out to everybody in the world, or at least everyone in the United States, to bid on it. But if you've got a model at UH-1A and you want to make it a a, a B model, you don't bid everybody else. So he spent a weekend thinking about what if we uh, slim down the Huey to 42 inches of diameter use the same engine, the same transmission, the same play controls, add hydraulics for miniguns, uh, put some armor on it, and by the next week, he was in the CEO's office of Bell proposing this proposal, and that's what Bell did. They, said, they went to the army and said, we can deliver a gunship much quicker than the Cheyenne, and uh, it'll be the same technology we have today in the Huey primarily, uh, and we can do it a lot faster than the Cheyenne. And the army reneged on the Cheyenne contract, and, a, and, and also reneged on the Tomahawk. They had given the Tomahawk an indication that they might be the, the, the interim aircraft, and they reneged on the Tomahawk. And the H1, the AH1 Huey, the uh, AH1 uh, Cobra was developed. Now the American Helicopter Museum has a Cobra on display. It is nothing like a Huey. I mean, it's it's much more mature device. But the original Cobras were just slimmed down Hueys with extra or, uh, extra hydraulics and maybe some armor and stuff like that. So I thought that was an interesting story, and it had a Tomahawk H uh, two Tomahawk feature.
1: Well, it makes sense, like from a logistic point of view, and even if you look at the the Yankee model, like in in current times, you know Zulu model Cobras and the Yankee model Hueys, like being able to have part commonality. Uh, so yeah, very very clever idea. I'm looking at a picture of the Cheyenne now, and you yep. can almost chop the the tandem cockpit off that and. Put it on a on a cobra and and it'll i guess you, could, yeah. you can you can't be so inventive with a, a tandem cockpit, but it looks like that they they took some design uh, liberty and maybe took a few ideas yeah but uh, tell so jim, them, yeah. jim tell me tell me about the the battle the chinook um, option I'm just picturing this this battle truck of a chinook with a, a forward yeah. forward shooting rockets and things like that that thing would have been like a um, what do they call the the Hercules? The C one hundred and thirty Spectre with the the one hundred and five cannon outside of it.
0: Yeah, uh, Charlie Green Giant is it, or uh, I've forgotten. Uh, they, I know what you mean. It's got miniguns guns out, and it's got cannons out each side.
1: So I'm it picturing a Chinook like, with uh, with a cannon. That would be amazing. I don't know yeah. if you've got any details on on what the on what the Chinook bid looked like.
0: I, I don't have any details, but I can tell you it was the Boeing Vertol ACH dash four seven A. ACH 47A was the model name. I don't know how far they all got into this interim, interim thing. You know, the the, the the Army generals needed something to keep, reduce the uh, losses of Hueys, but uh, I don't know how they got. It wouldn't take Bell. Once this guy had this idea within a few days, they could see how they could make this proposal to the Army, and that might have undermined everything else. Yeah. One small part of that is that. So the Tomahawk, this, a friend of mine is making this battle, design for battle episode around the UH-2A Tomahawk. But a few years later, uh, the command people proposed a twin-engine gunship, and it was called the HH-2C, with some light armor, mini guns, and a, a handful were built. And I think they were operated by a squadron called HC-7 out in, in the uh, Far East uh, during late in the Vietnam era. And I don't know the, a lot of details about it, but I think they were too heavy. I mean, this was taking a utility helicopter, making it a gunship, and it just was too heavy. The armor was too heavy. The ordnance and the weapons weapons, uh, were too heavy, and the device did not get beyond beyond a handful of aircraft made, and it never really operated uh, very much in the service.
1: Can you talk about the museum? I I should
0: say one other thing. Go ahead. Yeah, let's go to the museum. That would be a good idea.
1: Yeah, do you want to talk about the collection?
0: Yeah. We have a great helicopter museum. It's in Westchester, Pennsylvania which is southwest of Philadelphia, about 25 miles. It's at Brandywine Airport, and it's located there because Philadelphia area is the cradle of rotary ring aviation. I'll tell you more about that if you want to know. The museum's goal is to preserve rotary ring history and educate people about helicopters and their life-saving missions and inspire future generations. One of the great things about it personally is I've flown six helicopters, and all six are on display at that museum, so I can go through my whole helicopter flight experience with examples and I have most of my time in sea sprites and the sea sprite they have on display at that museum is one I'd in my flight log, I actually flew that one day. The collection has got a lot of exciting aircraft in it. The main one I think is the, they've been the only people with a uh, Osprey until a year or so ago when one went to, another one went to Wright-Patt Air Force Base. And for years we've been the only V-22 tilt rotor Osprey people. We've got a knight the smaller version of the Chinook from Boeing. We've got a Cobra that's really cool to look at up close. Of course, we've got Huey Jet Rangers. Uh, we have three OH-6s, including an attack version. There's, of course, an HH-2DC sprite uh, that we were talking about earlier. There's a HUP, the old-fashioned Piasecki twin rotor HUP. There's an H-3 Sea King and, and a UH-34D Seahorse. The muse- and the museum has another dozen, two dozen, I guess maybe a 40, 45 aircraft altogether. And a lot of other material and displays of items and stuff. And we do a lot of events, about eight helicopter ride weekends each year. And I told you about the symposium about the helicopter war, 50 years since the Vietnam War. We're having a book signing in next month. Uh, the book is called Tuskegee in Philadelphia. It's about the Tuskegee Airmen. It's not quite a helicopter story, but uh, we're involved in that. We have an annual gala. We have a Father's Day uh, Best, the World Helicopter Day, Veterans Day, Santa event. We're restoring an, uh, a um, Sikorsky R6. It's just about out of the shop now. It's one of the earliest Sikorsky models. And the H2 is actually stored outdoors, and it's been weather-beaten pretty much. So they're going to pull that in next and uh, improve that. We put out a newsletter twice a year. You can find the museum at the, on the web at AmericanHelicopter.museum. American helicopter with no space dot museum. We've got rentable facilities. We also do a lot of education work. We do a lot with girls in science and technology programs. We have a science Saturdays, workshops on astronomy, introduction to coding and robotics for young people. And we have a story time around science, technology, engineering, the arts and mathematics. So there's a lot going on. It's open Wednesdays to Sunday. Um, you can look up the times of days that's open. And I, I find it a lot, a lot of fun to be there. And what's great is, you know, you go to an airfield, you can't get close to a, somebody's private helicopter. They don't want you fooling around with it. But here you can get up there and work the tail rotor pedals and uh, want a couple of the display models and see how the, the swashplate works and all that kind of stuff. So we, ha- we have a good time there.
1: It'd be great for a Any questions uh, systems... about it or... Yeah, but go from a systems point of view, being able to go and seeing so many helicopters close to each other, you know whether it was a swashplate or whatever it is, that you can go and, and see how yeah. different designers have come up with the, the solution for it.
0: Yeah. We have, a, we have one model particularly that you can actually mechanically work. So you can look the rubber pedals or go back and watch the tail rotor shaft move in and out. And uh, it helps people really understand the aircraft.
1: Do you keep any flyable ones there? Is, it, is everything static display or do you have a couple that are flying? No. No, we don't have any flyable ones there. We're strictly you
0: know, static displays primarily.
1: I want to give a big shout out to Jan uh, there because uh, she's been very supportive over the last couple of years for, for World Helicopter Day uh, in getting things done. So I just thought I'd better mention Jan if she's, if she's listening and you're passing yeah. it around. Uh, she's done a great job you know, representing the museum there on World Helicopter Day. How's the museum farmed? Is it just takings at the door or is there a, a grants program?
0: Yeah, there is a membership program. I think it's about $75 a year. I think admission is $10. We we get grants to some extent, but we're largely uh, partially funded by – we own a hangar, and we rent out part of it, so part of it's got companies in it that that, are not part of the museum, separate, but they actually give us revenue. We also do weddings. We do uh, corporate meetings. We do all kinds of stuff, Uh, you know, receptions and birthday parties.
1: So someone's a helicopter – so if someone's a helicopter fanatic and they can convince their other half, they can come and have a, a wedding at the, at the helicopter museum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: And, you know, they have a good staff over there. So it's a, it's a very nice facility, very clean and well-organized. And We're always adding things, you know, there's always things coming in and being added to the collection, but it's a challenge running a nonprofit. Of course, it's still a challenge and. Again, it's called the American Helicopter Museum and Education Center. So it's got a big, big role in education, engaging young people and uh, the community.
1: Well, if you've listened to this podcast and you're anywhere nearby and, and dropping in, you'll have to keep an eye out for, for Jim uh, volunteering there at the museum and, and go say good day. Yeah. Jim, we've probably got time for, for one more story, uh, the, the fish pole. Can you, can you talk about the fish pole yeah. and, and what that is?
0: So when you're in a rescue environment, uh, we are quite proud of the speed and the professionalism of our rescue capability using sea sprites with the Navy uh, aircraft carrier plane guard uh, crews. But our idea was that the person in the water might have been a jet pilot that was injured in an ejection. Uh, It might be unconscious. It might be a sailor who got blown off the ship by wind or by engines or fell off the ship and hit the water after falling 60 feet and is unconscious. So, our vision was to get in fast and, and get, get, uh, assess the situation very quickly. And if necessary, put our fourth crewman, the wet crewman, in the water to pull a person's head out of the water to get, make them buoyant, and get them out of their parachute shrouds. So, as we come upon a rescue, we would come in fast. Be, once we, all four of us in the aircraft are looking for the person in the water. But once we'd find him, we'd get over them fast. And as we got you know, maybe 100 feet away, the senior air crewman took over the rescue. He's looking out through the side door, looking down at the uh, victim in the water, because the pilot is in the hover, is right over the victim, and you can't see the victim. So now the, the senior crewman's talking to the intercom system, giving us complete directions: what's going to happen next, what needs to happen, move left, move right. But as, as we get uh, close to the victim in the water, the senior crewman makes a judgment: is the if the pilot's waving and smiling and having a good time, we're going to hover over him, put the hoist down, he he'll, he can hook himself up to the. Uh, e-ring on his uniform to our, car, our uh, hoist hook, and we can pull him up. But if he's unconscious or tied up in his parachute shrouds or struggling, we're going to go to 15 feet on the radar altimeter, and the uh, senior air through to a signal to the pilots, is going to push the wet crewman to free fall 15 feet into the ocean, and the wet kuman's going to pull the pe- person's head out of the water and cut his parachute shrouds or out of and that kind of stuff. So, and that works quite well, uh, literally, in the rescue environment when the hover, Senior crewman's in charge of the rescue. The pilot's just helping the senior crewman succeed. but the command came up with a thing called a fish pole, and a fish pole is a is a steel pole uh, maybe three inches diameter, two inches diameter, and it 's connected to the front of the fuselage to the right on the outside of the fuselage to the right of the pilot's right foot and it goes up along the uh, edge of the window and across the back of the above the doorway behind the, uh, the, the uh, the pilot seat and the hoist, and the, the, where it's parked in flight is right up next to the hoist. And the senior air crewman connects the hoist uh, cable out of the stanchion that it comes out of the aircraft through the fish pole. And when when uh, when it's connected, as the hoist lets out, the fish pole rotates so that when it's in the pull down position, the fish pole is maybe 12 feet to the right forward of the helicopter, and the cable is pull is, sh- is shooting straight down the person in the water. Now the pilot can see what's going on. The senior crewman still in charge of the rescue, but you don't have to, he doesn't have to say every single thing that has to happen. You can see where the hook is versus the, the victim and where the wet crewman is, all that kind of stuff. It was a cool feature that not all H2s had, but we had quite a few of them. So it was it a was like simple thing, but it allowed the pilot to see the rescue as it evolved and uh, have a more responsive role rather than listening to audio commands, uh, what to do next and left and right and all that kind of stuff.
1: I'll have to... Uh, yeah, could I
0: go to one other thing?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, I'll, I'll have to look it up. I'm, I'm just trying to picture it. I can quite, can't quite get it. So if, you, yeah, if there's any photos or anything like that, you can send it through. I can include them in, in, the, in the blog post that goes along with this.
0: In the accident report I sent to you, the first page has a fishbowl in the picture.
1: Okay, I'll, uh, I'll cut that out of that, and if you're happy, I'll include that in the blog post. But uh, yeah, keep keep going. You're on.
0: Right. One other thing I wanted to tell you about this aircraft, the H2's had a Doppler system. Doppler sends a, a radiation, a signal down to the water's edge, and it bounces up and it reads that signal. And the way it's used is a gauge on the, on the cockpit, uh, in the cockpit, called the Ground Speed Drift Angle Indicator, and it's on the dashboard but it's orient- the way it's looked at is it looks like it's, it's, it's uh, horizontal and it has a glass face to it. It's got a little round dot and it's got a vertical line and a horizontal line. The round dot is to represent the person in the water and the lines show drifts left or right, fore and aft of that person in the water. And it's based on the Doppler sending a signal down and sensing the drift. So you theoretically could be over a person in bad weather at night or whatever, you could theoretically, if you're over the man and keep the two crosshairs, uh, the cross being centered, you're right over the person. Now, the fact is we, our rescues were done in VFR, so to say. We have a big spotlights. So we, the wet crewman is working in, I mean, the senior crewman is working in a visual environment. But the pilot could actually help manage that using this uh, ground speed drift to angle indicator, which is sort of cool.
1: You said there are a you had- few other interesting. You said theoretical okay. twice there. So in practice, was it yeah. not quite as in, as useful? In
0: practice, we did visual. In practice, we did visual. The what the senior crewman told us what he had what he had to do. He told us to and he sometimes might want us to drift away. He might want the aircraft to drift over thirty feet because the the person in the water and the wet crewman's in the water it's a mess down there. There's water blowing and wind blowing and into <laughs> turbans. And it's a real Mess and if the if the wet crewman had some real challenges, they might have the helicopter fly over uh, 50, 70, 500 feet away just to uh, clear some of the, you know, the noise and the water blowing around while he cut parachute shrouds or whatever he had to do to get the victim uh, ready to come up the hoist.
1: Well, Jim, look, that's been a, a lot of fun. Uh, and the thing I love about uh, mm. you know chatting with people is it's just so much to find out and, and, and the different aspects of it. And I know we've kind of only touched on on half the sort of content you had there. Uh, but, yeah, I yeah. think if uh, if people are definitely nearby the museum or are travelling, uh, I've forgotten the date. I think this year uh, for 2020, I think it's 16th of, of August is the Sunday for World Helicopter Day, so there'll be definitely an event there for it. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, they'll yeah. we'll have the, the normal sort of events through the year, and it would be, I mean, the next biggest one. I think the UK Helicopter Museum is the biggest in the world, but it's, uh, but, oh, yeah. Oh, really? What are where is that? It is Somerset, uh, Westmere. Oh. Uh, of it's oh. got a, it's got a, actually a pretty cool name. I think it's super uh, Westmere. I've check it out. But yeah, you've put in the the helicopter museum. Uh, they've got a, a pretty yeah. crazy collection as well. But definitely, yeah. In terms of outside of that one in the UK, I think you guys must be surely the, the next biggest helicopter museum. So anyone who's traveling nearby. Oh, okay. Pop in and, and say good day and have a look at the collection for sure. Good. Okay, Jim, thank you so much for, for reaching in and, and having the time to, to chat and appreciate getting up early over there due to the time zone. So, uh, look, thank you very much for, for sharing the stories and, and sharing your time. Good.
0: Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for your good work, mate. Help communicate our stories to the world.
1: That was Jim Palmquist from Pennsylvania in the USA. Enjoyed catching up with Jim, and there are lots of stuff in there that I'd never been exposed to before. As an interesting branch of this chat, the, the Super Seasprite Sprite was an up engined version of the, the, the SH2 model that Jim flew. Meaning, and them were actually still the original airframes, Vietnam era, they had just been modified with the, the new engines. In 2001, the Royal Australian Navy brought 11 Super Seasprites Sprites for $1 billion and then spent the next seven years trying to get them operational. Just reading from the the Navy website here. The sea sprite acquisition and introduction in the service was plagued with engineering, personnel and political issues. In 2002, the then Chief of Navy refused to endorse provisional acceptance of the aircraft, but this was overturned by the Minister of Defence, and eight of the sea sprites were provisionally accepted into an interim training helicopter configuration. Limited training flights commenced in November 2003 with first-of-class flying trials on board ANZAC-class frigates, commencing from May 2004. By late 2004, so remember this has all started back in uh, 2001, so by late 2004, the Sea Sprite has been granted an Australian military-type certification. This then gets withdrawn in May 2006 due to concerns with the helicopter's automatic flight control system. Sea Sprites were grounded. The debate continued within Navy, the Defence Material Organisation, and with the Minister of Defence regarding concerns of the airframe and the future of the project. On twenty fifth of May two thousand and seven, much to the surprise of many, the government announced that the Sea Sprite project was to continue. Later, or oh, sorry, less than a year later, and following a change of government, the project was cancelled on fifth May two thousand and eight. Eight hundred five Squadron was subsequently decommissioned in 2008, and the 11 Sea Sprite aircraft were basically handed back or retained by, by Cayman, who then later sold eight of them to the New Zealand Defence Force. So it's just straight, yeah, a bit of history there straight off the, uh, the website. Currently, New Zealand, Egypt, Poland, and Peru still operate the Super Sea Sprites here in 2020. In terms of trivia, check this out. The Sea Sprites in Poland operate off two Navy frigates, one of which is named the General Tadeusz Kosciuszko after a Polish-Lithuanian freedom fighter. This is the very same guy that Australia's tallest mountain, Mount Kosciuszko, is named after. So I guess the Australian connection with the Super Sea Sprite lives on. More seriously, though, the American Helicopter Museum collection looks amazing and well worth a visit if you were heading through that part of the USA. They actually have a, an adopter helicopter program at the moment. And so there's an Osprey, a Cobra, a Huey C-Knight, a, uh, a Hughes 269, a Hughes 369 or the, the RA6, and there's a S76D. Uh, each ECRA, or each individual adopter copter costs $50 plus uh, $2 per adoption for shipping and handling. It comes with an official adoption kit that contains a certificate of adoption Glossy photos with details about your adopted helicopter, interesting facts about the helicopter, paper helicopter cutouts, two complimentary passes to the museum, and a bonus colouring page. A note at the bottom of the website does highlight, though, that this is a purely symbolic adoption, and it's a donation to the museum. But yeah, a bit of fun there. and could be a good present for someone. Let's talk World Helicopter Day 2020. It's the third Sunday in August, which this year falls on Sunday the 16th of August in uh, 2020. There are heaps of details up on the website at, or I should say at worldhelicopterday.com. You can see all the past events from last several years. That's so about the sixth year of the event that we're up to, and registrations are open for this year. So it's something uh, to yeah look at. It. It's, it's all free. Uh, you can get your... Our own helicopter World Helicopter Day event listed and promoted internationally. So get a master, talk about it in your crew room, your flight school or your hangar. And let's see who can come up with the biggest or most novel helicopter themed event for this year's World Helicopter Day. It doesn't have to be big though. It can simply be opening up the hangar to the public and having a, a barbecue. That's a way of getting locals in to find out more about the machines that you operate and, the, and more about the industry in a, in a fun way. And maybe you've heard me banging on about World Helicopter Day for the last five years and still haven't done anything associated with the event in your town or city. So why don't you make 2020 the year that World Helicopter Day comes to your local community or your airport. There's the the challenge for you. This show wouldn't be possible or at least would be much more difficult without the support of the following very awesome human beings. So a big thank you to the supporters on Patreon who are helping to cover some of the bandwidth costs for this podcast when you download it and listen to it so a big thank you to AJ Brent, Chris Eric, Gareth, Hell Heath, Jack Jake, Jason John, Kevin Carillion, Mark, Michael Peter, Rendell and Shannon and Tony thank you very much gang the show notes, photos and links for this episode can be found at rotarywingshow.com see pictures there of jim and some of the one pictures from his career you can find out find us on facebook at rotary wing show and on email you can reach me at feedback at rotary wing show till next week get out there be safe be professional and have some fun with helicopters